glycemic index, glycemic load, and cardiovascular disease and mortality. So we have talked a lot about carbohydrates here, obviously, and, and a lot of the controversies between carbs versus fat in a diet. If you're going to reduce calories, where from will you get your, your best benefit? Uh, we've also mentioned from time to time that there is a controversy between what is called the insulin model of obesity, which has been pretty thoroughly debunked. But I, I think if you discuss that as an outright dilemma that has a yes and a no answer, a right and a wrong, we're probably looking at it the wrong way. But there are some very tangential things to, to, to that today. So when we're talking about the insulin model of obesity, it's simply saying that, that insulin drives obesity, end of story. If you're overweight, it's because you ate too many carbohydrates, your body converted those carbs to fat through the mechanism of insulin. And therefore, that's why America has a 70% obesity rate. And even just through some of the studies we've reviewed together in the last couple of months, you should know, especially through Kevin Hall, the director of nutrition research at the NIH, that that's absolutely incorrect. Uh, it's overall calories more than anything. And if you're comparing carbs to fat, the more carbs you have in your diet, meaning more insulin over time and the less fat, then that's actually better for obesity markers. That's, that's actually better than, than being overweight. So they've done studies to show these people had more circulating insulin over time than these people. And the people with more insulin actually lost more body fat again, because it's looking at total calories and the fact that fat intake has more to do with obesity and even diabetes than carbohydrates. But again, if we looked at just that and made a conclusion, oh, okay, well now they're right. I'm going to switch teams and, and I, I vote for these people. They seem to have the better research. You would still be wrong because there are some things we have to consider when it comes to the glycemic index and glycemic load and total carbohydrates. So, so keep those two things in mind. This is not a dichotomy of, of one thing is right and one thing is wrong, but this particular study looked at some things uniquely. And I'm going to point out toward the end of the study that, that they, they did that intentionally, you know, that this is an answer to other studies as, as a lot of research is because research is an ongoing conversation. As soon as somebody has a hypothesis and they're testing it and, and they're making some dogmatic statements that, you know, hey, this is what we found. We did this research, here are our conclusions. Well, now other people will come in and say, okay, let's either just repeat that study and see if it was, you know, replicatable. Um, or I have a hypothesis that disagrees with that. And I think your methodology wasn't that great. And so I'm gonna repeat the study a different way and see if it confirms it or, or you know, does not confirm your findings. And so it, it all starts with one person with one study, one hypothesis. And then if it's worthwhile, if it's a topic that's of interest, you're gonna see that thing just mushroom out to massive, massive amounts of studies. And then you end up having to have meta-analysis studies where researchers will come in and say, okay, now I've looked at all of those studies on that topic. And, and, and I selected them for these criteria reasons. And now I'm going to, just through my analysis of all of their analyses, 
I'm going to tell you what's right and wrong. And so we just keep going, you know, orbit after orbit after orbit of, of analyzing different factors with research until we can draw some pretty significant conclusions. And, and, and this was a big piece in that. This was not a meta-analysis. This was actually a survey that was in the New England Journal of Medicine just last month. So a ton, I mean, a list of just dozens and dozens and dozens of researchers were involved in this study. And that's possible because it's a survey study. It's not like they're in a lab saying, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to inject these, these rodents or primates or people with, with this, and then we're going to see what happens. Or we're going to give them this particular diet, and then we're going to check all these blood markers. That kind of experimental study obviously has value. You can, you can check, you know, here's what we did. Here's what immediately we could, we could analyze. Here was data that we were, we were given. A survey study is something like this. They actually sent out 137,851 surveys. So pretty big study, right? An N of almost 150,000 people. Uh, but here's here's the whole premise. So let me go back to the let me go back to the title one more time, so you can you can kind of anchor in on this. Glycemic index, which is how simple or complex a carbohydrate source is, like a single carbohydrate source. We're going to compare a potato to rice to a Twinkie to oatmeal to an apple to broccoli. We're going to compare all of these carb sources, and the glycemic index is on this range of. Um, it was supposed to be zero to a hundred. And, and I think they had to go higher because they found that things are actually more simple than just like table sugar as they, they thought when they created this decades and decades ago. So, you know, you can get some things in the, in the glycemic index range of 140, 150, I think. So, so the higher the glycemic index value, the sugarier it is, the, the more simple it is. So something like a baked potato, processed white flour, those would be very high glycemic carbohydrates, something very low glycemic, like uh, salad or broccoli or something, you know, that means there's very little sugar in it as just a usable form. So there's more fiber to it. It's more complex. Obviously something like even oatmeal, you know, if you're comparing cereal, uh, you could, you could take oatmeal and compare it to, you know, something else over here. That's very simple. So that's the glycemic index glycemic load is the actual amount. So now you're looking at the, the quantity of that food. How much of a load does it take to create a blood sugar response with a certain food? Uh, so they were looking at that. You know, again, this is not a carbs versus fat study. This is not, you know, hitting on ketogenic dieting or anything like that. They simply wanted to see, does the quality of your carbohydrate, does a higher sugar diet increase your risk of death due to cardiovascular disease? Will it cause more strokes and heart attacks and so forth? So uh, we know just being obese does that. We know higher saturated fat diets and so forth do that. But there was still this controversy. Does a carbohydrate source have any direct impact on, on these mortality outcomes due to cardiovascular disease? So this was their opening statement. This is how, this is why they, they wanted to even create this study. Most data regarding the association between the glycemic index and cardiovascular disease comes from high income Western populations 
with little information from non-Western countries with low or middle incomes. To fill this gap, data are needed from large geographically diverse populations. So that, that was the gap they saw in the literature. Everything that they saw in terms of somebody's diet and analyzing does a higher carbohydrate, higher sugar diet create a condition for cardiovascular disease? They said, well, these are all just, just rich white people from Connecticut. You know, that, that's all that, that's ever been studied on this stuff. And, and it just doesn't tell us what's happening in Africa, what's happening in Asia, what's happening in these places where they may have, you know, completely different food sources. So one of the things that they were trying to look at is truly the glycemic index. You know, maybe a culture over there, they don't have potato chips or white flour tortillas or something, but they have other sources of food, maybe even natural whole food that just happens to be very high glycemic. So that's one of the things they wanted to test. They just they said, look, we've, we've done a literature review, everything we can. We just don't see anybody even testing that. So here's what they did. They sent out 138,000 surveys and the people were between 35 and 70 years old on five continents. And they did a follow-up survey uh, nine and a half years later. They said on average, it's, with this many people, it takes a little time to get those surveys back and so forth. But the, the average return survey was almost 10 years later. So, so they start out studying these people and they, they tell, they, they asked them with this questionnaire, which was really well done. So, so Kevin Brunacini and I are, are embarking on a study sponsored by the uh, University of Auckland. So where Carissa is over in New Zealand. And uh, we're looking at some things to do with nutrition coaching. And the particular study model that we are using is a survey model just like this. It's not experimental. You know, Kevin, me, Dr. Helms, you know, nobody's doing experimental stuff. We have graduate students who are going to construct a survey and we're going to start analyzing some things inside the nutrition coaching industry. So when you do a survey study, there are strengths and weaknesses. The weakness is, again, we're not epidemiologically or experimentally saying, okay, here are the experiment conditions. This is what we did. And this is what happened you're sending out questionnaires for people to answer. So your questionnaire has to be deft. I mean, it has to be fantastically worded. You have to make sure you're not creating any bias uh, in the way you ask questions or even in the questions that you ask. And so, so look at how they created this, which, which I, I really, really like. They actually use country specific and region specific foods so in doing this, they, they wanted to make sure that everybody throughout five different continents, all kinds of different countries and regions and ethnic groups, uh, they were asking about the foods they would actually be eating. And so that was important. They divided up the, the food groups between all of, they, they did something like, I'll find it here in a minute, but they did, did 28 different surveys because of the different regions and geographies, looking at the same information but being specific to ethnic groups, cultures, regions, and so forth. And so in doing so, in creating 28 different surveys, they ended up having over 32,000 different, 32, different carb sources that they were analyzing. And they would do this survey by saying, okay, out of all of these foods, you know, it may have been a, a list of you know, 200 foods per that particular region, you know, how often do you eat these? And it would be like one of those grids, you know, 
you know, every day or a couple times a week or, you know, once in a while or, you know, all the way to the other end of the scale, you know, never, I don't eat that food. And so they were trying to quantify how much of, of each person in the survey is consuming in a higher glycemic food category. They, they actually divided the, the, high, the, the glycemic index into seven categories because it would be a, a big data nightmare to just compare like one single food group out of 32,000 food groups or 32,000 individual items. So, th so they took them in blocks, you know, everything that's maybe under 40 on the glycemic index and then, you know, 40 to 70 and then 70 to 90, you know, something like that. They're doing a, a titrated model. So in this study, 10 years later, when they did the follow-up with almost 140,000 people, there had been close to 9,000 deaths. So about 9,000 people had, had died, just passed away. And they had about an, almost another 9,000, a little over 8,000, just major cardiovascular events that didn't uh, you know, result in death. So you're looking at almost, uh, you know, almost 9,000 deaths and, and around 8,000 particular cerebral vascular accidents of some sort. And so now they had to see, are there dots we can connect? Can we say that people on a higher glycemic index food, a higher glycemic load type of diet where because of the foods they consume, they're, they're constantly producing more and more insulin, is, th is that somehow related to cardiovascular disease? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the results right now. You know, no, no suspense needed here because then I want to really dissect whether we can accept those results or not based on their methodology. So one of the things they did was, and this is way easier to do now with, with statistical software out there where you just can just plug in the data and then you manipulate it. I don't know if anybody here has been, you know, around people who do research and so forth. It's, it's so, so, so much easier now because of, of, you know, like I said, the kind of software that you can manipulate things and try these things. So one of the things they did was they, they would compare across the, the board. So they had seven different categories. They would compare one, one category to th the next, like, like in different groups, like this person died of a heart attack or all of the people who died of heart attacks, all the people who didn't die of heart attacks or who just had heart attacks or strokes or something you know, who was in a high glycemic group and who was not? How many of those people were actually eating low glycemic foods? And they would even compare the highest category of high glycemic foods to the lowest category. And, and they would, you know, compare those to the center point. There were all of these different analytics they did, which I won't go completely into now, but I want to bring up the fact that they did this well, that they looked at every single thing they can, because statistically, you have to come up with a, a, a confidence interval. You know, that's something that when other researchers look at this and you're potentially trying to get peer reviewed and published in a magazine, it has to be a super, super well done study because other editors and scientists who look at these review boards, this is the kind of analysis they're going to do. Otherwise, they're going to look at it and say, well, that was, you didn't verify anything. You know, that was just a piece of shit, stupid study, not even worth your time. And no, we're not going to publish it. So it'll never get seen. It will never get debated. There will never be any citations, you know, to it. And, and this group, again, New England Journal of Medicine, dozens and dozens of researchers, they really did a great job with a 95% confidence interval, meaning they, they tested their data so many different ways that there is a 95% chance 
that what they tested for is what they found. So even before you can say they found that there was no correlation or that there was a correlation, either one of those, whatever their findings, they did such good analytical work that there's a 95% chance that it's correct. So, so going right off the bat, that's a high, it's a high confidence variable. That's, you know, you want to get to 95%. Some, some can get all the way up to 99%, but, but that should give you a lot of validity in this. So here's what they actually found. Uh, we found that a high glycemic index diet uh, was associated with an increased risk of major cardiovascular event or death to the points of, well, well uh, with both with participants who had pre-existing cardiac disease, cardiovascular disease, and those who didn't. So out of those almost 140,000 people, some of them already had pre-existing heart issues. Some of them didn't. So of those who had pre-existing, there was a 1.51% greater chance of them having a cardiovascular accident or incident. So that means about 51% greater likelihood. Um, you know, you know, so if you have a high glycemic diet, you have a 50% greater chance if you already have an existing heart issue to develop that. If you did not have heart disease, and again, this was a 10 year survey. So this is, this is an important bit of information too. Uh, then you only had about a 1.21. So now just, just over 20% increase. So you think, well, that's not bad. You know, I can, I can eat a bunch of sugar and, and low or high glycemic carbohydrates and it only increases my risk of heart disease by 20%. But you would have to say it's 20% within that 10 year span of somebody having zero cardiac risk, you know, ratio type concerns or, or pre-existing conditions to a 20% higher increase because the other people who already had pre-existing heart conditions, they actually accelerated all the way up to 50% greater chance. So, so that shows that there is a statistical significance you know, we can, we can make this correlation. Uh, in other words, we can't say, well, out of these 140,000 or so people and 9,000 of them died, another 8,000 had cardiovascular incidents. Uh, you know, maybe it was because they happened to like the Boston Red Sox. And that's why, you know, you can't, you can't just pull something out of the air and say that there was something completely unrelated because they had such a statistically high confidence interval. But that's important because I'm going to make the assertion that it's not necessarily the carbohydrates because they didn't analyze every single part of their diet. Uh, let me ask you one question. If somebody eats a diet high in sugar or just high in processed foods, what do you think that says about their health values? Are they somebody who might also eat fast food more often, who might also choose not to exercise consistently? Because I know if I'm making the decision to eat a low glycemic index diet, meaning I'm having most of my food from quality whole food sources, and then I, and if I were looking at this survey and I was filling out that questionnaire, and I was showing that, yeah, I eat oatmeal often. I eat brown rice often. I eat vegetables often. I eat this. And then, you know, how often do you eat cookies or ice cream, things like that? It'd be like, well, only this minimum amount and so forth. 
So you could look at me as an individual out of that 140,000 and say, wow, Joe doesn't eat very much sugar. So therefore, that's the, the number one indicator of, of having great heart health. But they didn't ask me that I, do I train 60 minutes every single day, six days a week? Do I train with great intensity? Can I run three miles under 20 minutes? Yeah, smoking. Yeah, you know, they're, they're just not looking at all of these other variables and they tend to go hand in hand with other positive or negative traits. So what you're hoping for in a survey study like this is just sheer volume of data. They have 140,000 people in five different, you know, on five different continents over 10 years. And, and I'll, I'll get down to some of the strengths of the study. I don't want to, I didn't want to like hear this as a record scratch, like, okay, this whole study was now not worth anything, but these are questions you have to ask, you know, what's, if we're going to say there is a correlation, what are some other correlations that we could have missed? Um, one of the things that, that I will say gives us a clue into some of these correlational things is that those with a higher BMI, they had a much higher rate of cardiovascular incidence with their higher sugar status. So in other words, if I'm 120 pounds and I run 10 miles every day and I eat a lot of sugar, that's very, very different from somebody who's sedentary and who doesn't work out whatsoever and is 75 pounds overweight and they eat the same amount of sugar as I do. So again, it's not just the glycemic index and the glycemic load that these things matter. But, but again, in a, in a survey of 130,000 people, 140,000 people, they, they don't necessarily care that those are those other correlates because they know if they can get a study published like this and they can get some headlines then from a public health perspective, they're going to say, okay, sugar's not that great. We definitely can now say there's a correlation between high sugar intake and cardiovascular disease. And maybe that will get some people to start reducing sugar intake. And we know with, with billions of people on the planet that has immediate impact in health, that, that will absolutely uh, bring, bring some of those cases down. And it will also probably affect other behavior because, like I said, if I'm if I'm making the effort to reduce sugar and processed food, I'm probably doing some other things better in my life as well. So, let me uh, let me get a couple more of these details that I wanted to point out to you. Um, not sure if you really care about the particular countries, but they they did want to divide this up because everything that had been studied before had been in pretty affluent societies. So they they chose. Uh, four high-income countries, 11 middle-income countries, and then five lower-income countries to, uh, to do these, these tests. Um, so I already mentioned that there were 28 different versions of the questionnaire. And uh, let's see, in each, each particular questionnaire for each society, there, there was anywhere between 98 and 220 actual food items listed. Um, and let me get down to their final conclusion remarks, and then we'll, we'll talk about some other things here. 
So in comparing the highest versus lowest quintiles, those seven groups of the glycemic index in a fully adjusted model, we observe a positive association with the primary composite, composite outcome in all three groups, uh, including among participants with no preexisting cardiovascular disease. So I mentioned that. Um, so people with pre-existing, people with, without pre-existing, and then in the total population. Similar associations were seen in cardiovascular death, major cardiovascular events, and stroke. The glycemic index was also associated with, it, associated with the risk of death from any cause uh, of non-cardiovascular disease. So things like diabetes and so forth that they could, they could lump in there. Um, the association between the glycemic index and primary composite outcome was significantly stronger among participants with a higher BMI, as I mentioned. So that shows just an almost linear correlation. So, so the heavier somebody was, the higher their BMI, those people were, were you know, higher and higher in both the, their obesity levels and in the amount of sugar they reported eating. So a survey study like this really shows directional trends. Like I said, don't, don't consider this as necessarily the same as an experimental model where we can say, we're going we're gonna to make you eat sugar, and then we're going to test what that does to your, your, your blood sugar levels. Or uh, we can even test like, like gene expression. We, if you remember a, a few weeks ago, we talked about how when you have more time between meals, more fasting time in between your, your feeding times, you end up having less gene expression for, for cancers and things like that that you may otherwise express. Those genes could be turned on. But when you eat fewer times a day, you have less of those genetic triggering events. So again, because of just systemic inflammation and so forth. And so what they're finding here is yes, when you're heavier, you have a higher incidence of these cardiovascular events, but it's also a direct line. Your, your, your heavy status, your obesity level correlates to the amount of, of high glycemic foods you eat, the ratio to your, your other foods, and then also to those cardiovascular events. So sometimes a lab study is good to show that direct cause and effect relationship. Sometimes it takes a survey study to do this because you can't, you can't have somebody eat something high glycemic and then wait for 15 minutes and say, oh, they didn't have a heart attack. So move on to the next subject. This must not cause heart disease. You're not going to find that out in 15 minutes or, or two weeks or an eight week study. So that's where these survey studies really, really come in. Uh, are you familiar with the ongoing Harvard study on happiness? I think they're in their like 50th year or 60th year that they took, they started doing these surveys with Harvard graduates and they just wanted to see what makes a person happy. And so they, they waited like, you know, a, I think like maybe every 10 or 20 years, they send a survey out. And so some of these people are now 70, 80, 90 years old. They took this survey when they were 22. And then they see, you know, what, what's their level of happiness? I mean, it's tens of thousands of people now in the study. And, and they're looking at different life events and times of life. And they made this dramatic conclusion a couple of years ago that the single number one greatest thing that predicts how happy somebody will be is how many close personal relationships they have. If you don't have any friends, you're the least happy person on the planet. The, 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 the more super close trusted 
you know, inner circle friends you have and relationships that are positive in your life, that indicates your happiness level way more than money, way more than status, way more than career, way more than anything else. Uh, they could not do that study in a lab, right? Like they, they can't just, you know, put somebody in a chair, do an analysis of them and so forth. You have to conclude those things over that kind of a long, long time span. That's the value of a survey study like this. You get to actually ask people some questions and you have to be good at sifting through the subjective components of that. And there are still some things to learn from those subjective elements because we're, we're asking people about their own perceptions and that, that has value. Um, you know, in terms of something like that Harvard study. So th this, this again, can give you something that a, an experimental study cannot. Um, one of the things that they wanted to conclude uh, or, or in their findings look for is, are there actual cultural differences? And, and this is a, a bit of a unique nuance. Uh, there, there was not very much variation, but they did find that the countries like China that have had the most recent turns toward a processed high glycemic Western type diet, they actually fared the worst. So we know it takes a long time for genetics to change, but we also know that the top layer of genetics, which is epigenetics can change very rapidly. So you take these cultures that maybe just 30, 40 years ago, almost everybody in their country was still eating you know, whole food, low glycemic, just things. Then 20, 30, 40 years ago, now they're, they're full of McDonald's and Starbucks and everything else like every other country. And so now they have this similar type of Western diet because it was so new to some of those people that the health trauma was actually greater. So they had worse impact with higher glycemic foods. They weren't as resilient. So uh, I guess the take home message is that you, we have to work really hard at being unhealthy and then that helps us be healthier, unhealthy people. But um, one final thing here, they, I have one thing that's highlighted in a way that I want you to, to see this as kind of the key of the whole thing. This isn't it quite yet. Uh, as expected, this is what they said, a higher glycemic index diet was associated with an increased risk of adverse effects among the participants with a higher BMI. Uh, I mentioned that persons with a high BMI are at an increased risk for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and certain cancers. Yeah, I think that's all kind of, you know, we could have expected that that's already been well documented, but here's, here's what I want you to really center on. Diets with a high glycemic index can be extended can be expected to interact with the insulin resistance associated with increased BMI to produce an even higher postprandial glycemic response. When you are already overweight and you eat a high glycemic food, it almost exponentially makes that high glycemic food worse. If you remember our discussions on the metabolic switch, you're, you're, you're already overweight, your body's already used to using glucose as energy, your body is always primed during that metabolic position to turn glucose foods, to turn high glycemic foods into fat already. It takes time. It takes months of, of being in a calorie deficit to move that metabolic switch. And depending on how well controlled your diet is to move that metabolic switch to where you have greater fat usage adaptation. So, 
just as I said, there's a lot of crossover between any discussion like this and ketogenic dieting and intermittent fasting. You'll, you'll hear a lot of that same language, but it's not like you're in one of those extreme camps and you're staying there. There's, you know, there, there are pros and cons to that, but way more cons. So our goal is to move that metabolic switch to the point where over time, we just have a greater capacity to use fat as energy. If you remember, we can make our bodies better at using fat as energy. You can increase to 10, 20, 30, 40% better efficiency at using fat as energy, meaning you're also that much more resilient to turning carbohydrates into cholesterol because we can turn the carbs we eat into cholesterol and then be stored as fat. People who are already overweight and not active just have a massively exponential uh, internal physiological ability or efficiency at turning those carbs into fat. So that's where it becomes even worse. That, that's where you start to see an acceleration. If we, if we can say that on average, out of almost 138,000 people, there's a 1.5% chance or a 50% greater op or, or cardiovascular disease rate with higher glycemic foods, then you would see it go like this. You know, here, here's for the average person, and then it scales up. Think of it like COVID. We know that, uh, you know, for children, for example, COVID is only about 0.1% lethal, but you get up to the average population and it's about 1% lethal. Then you get up to people over 80 and it's 15 to 20% lethal. So we can say the average lethality rate for COVID is somewhere around one or one and a half percent, but there are extremely different skewed populations. Same thing here. People who have higher uh, insulin resistance already are going to suffer with this more. So here's what's really interesting too, though. They, they found some positive correlations. So a low glycemic index diet, and, and these are controlled for amounts of food. So just, you know, when we're, we're taking those stats into consideration, a lower glycemic index food, more whole food, more complex carbohydrates are associated with, with uh, lower levels of serum cholesterol, which cholesterol has to be higher for you to have heart disease. So that's just naturally, you know, there and C-reactive protein and lower blood pressure. So now they're getting into the nuances of, of why these high glycemic index diets end up creating more heart disease. Um, but here's what they said the limitations of their study were. This, this, every, every single research piece has to say almost, you know, self-critically, Here's, here's what we think our study did well. Here's what our study couldn't do well. These were our challenges. These are the things that we couldn't study. We couldn't conclude uh, for whatever reason in the limitations of the study. So one of the reasons I said I wanted to pick through this study model more than we have in the past is that so you guys can see the difference in, in a survey study. So they said, first of all, carbohydrates were grouped into seven categories, which may have resulted in less precision. So like I said, if they were going to look at the 3,200 foods individually, like, oh, this, this food really caused heart disease. This one did not cause heart disease that much at all. So therefore eat this one. You know, they just couldn't do that with 3,200 foods, especially with a self-reporting survey. That would have to be more of an experimental model. 
but they, they had to say, they had to admit, like that's a limitation of a survey study. You know, we, we, we admit that right off the bat. Second, the inclusion of many different populations could limit uniform conclusions. So they could have said, we're just gonna study, you know, people in China. We're just gonna study people in Saudi Arabia. We're, and, and therefore we're gonna tell you exactly for your culture, what the best foods are and so forth. They said, we, we didn't look at that. You know, we accounted for that because we wanted to see the impact of different cultures, but we studied the whole group intentionally. And that was, that was what they set out to do. That's what they said did not exist in the literature is a broad based look at our, you know, homo sapien genetics across the planet. So it's, you know, they list it as a strength and a weakness. It's just a nuance of the study. Um, they also said, unfortunately, the number of participants, although large overall, were not large enough to allow for meaningful analysis according to each individual region. So once again, they're saying, look, you know, we only tested 4,000 people in Zambia and, you know, 12,000 people here. So even though it was 140,000 people on five continents in several different countries, almost two dozen countries, it still wasn't an exhaustive survey of the population uh, in each place. So they said, but here were the strengths. This study was large, it included participants from diverse economic regions, many low-income countries, country-specific food frequency questionnaires to assess intake. We were able to allow <clears throat> or able to show different associations between glycemic index and the incidence of death and major cardiovascular disease with a positive dose response relationship. So it wasn't just that they eat these foods, but it's, it's dose dependent how much. And they said there was, there just hasn't been a recent meta-analysis that has been able to do that. Like we, we wanted to break new ground. We wanted to create this level of diversity, this number of participants for these reasons. So, so they, they, they came to the conclusion that after all of that work, a 10 year survey study, five continents, 140,000 people, you are 50% more likely to have heart disease and probably die of heart disease if you have a diet that is high glycemic. So, like I said, the limitations of that are you could be that person with a 50% greater chance right at the midline, but if you're obese, and or sedentary, then your your risk goes way, 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 way up because that's the 50 yard line. That's the average. If you were leaner and super active and you had a high glycemic food intake, you know, your chances aren't going to be that different because your body's better at glucose disposal. You're using that energy. So, you know, you have to, you, we have to look again at total food volume. We have to look at saturated fat and other health values and, and habits. And, and I think more than anything, uh, the actual training component really does have to be there because that's, that's one of the, the biggest things that reduce our risk of heart disease is regardless of what we're putting in our diet, our training and our exercise is, is going to be a huge factor. So even with that not accounted for, again, the midline 50%, 51% higher rate you know, then, then you'd have to assume that those people were at the, the lower end, but you're still, they're still part of that statistical average. So here's one of the things I also want to throw out at you as just a comparison, and then I'll be done. This being a survey analysis, looking for correlations, there are tons of studies you can look up, you know, does sugar negatively impact immune response? 
if we if we make all of these fruit flies or rats or people or primates or kids or adults or you know name your test subject group if we give them sugar high sugar dose make them have 50 grams of sugar right now through a Gatorade or something else you know what happens to the mobility of their white blood cells their ability to to uh, you know destroy virus or or pathogens um, you can look at those things. And, and we know that there are massive negative correlations with a high sugar diet to things that we could associate with longevity, like empirically, evidentially right there in a lab. But it takes a long-term survey study like this to, to show that people are actually dying because of that correlation. We can show the negative impact in you right now physiologically, but does that actually mean something long-term? We, we would really just be guessing if we didn't do actual survey studies like this. So, so that's where the value of this comes in. It's, it's one type of study that ends up being less precise, but, but very, you know, volumetrically high. And it at least says, hey, you guys are looking in the right direction. There, there is absolutely a correlation here. Now, if you want to dig deeper into some of those experimental type studies, you know, you can do that, or you can you can divide these people up into even other subgroups and see if you can make more conclusions. But that's that's the entire kind of background of of where a survey study would fit in, and and I thought this particular study being very very current would would be useful in showing that at least we we know that there there is a correlation. Eat a high sugar diet. And, and you're gonna have a 50% a increased chance of, of heart disease. The reason that's important if for you guys, if you're looking into some of the arguments and so forth that happen on sh social media right now, and, and everybody likes to talk about the insulin model being debunked, and it really is all about fats or overall calories or this or that, at least this gives you one, one big piece of information to say, okay, it's still not good to eat sugar. You know, It's still healthier regardless of whatever other food values you have, it's still healthier to have a lower glycemic index based diet. You know, it's, it's why I eat oatmeal for breakfast most mornings or a piece of whole grain toast with my egg whites instead of having a donut. You know, it's why I have a whole grain bagel or something for lunch instead of just, you know, three servings of potato chips. You know, the, those are the kind of principled food decisions we make uh, and, and we're told we should do that because we're healthy, but it takes a study like this to, to conclude with that 95% confidence interval that, yeah, you are definitely making the right move. It's, it behooves you to do that. Um, you know, one of the reasons why even last night when, when my son made these, these chocolate chip, um, peanut butter, cheesecake, brownie bar things he made last night. I was already full. It was, you know, I mean, dinner was over. I had a great dinner. I was not planning on having anything the rest of the night. And, and he wanted to make these as a celebration for, um, you know, the end of our semester. My, my daughter graduates high school and, and I'm, you know, finishing up a degree. And so what did I do? I, I cut a tiny, tiny, tiny little piece because I just didn't want to have that kind of a, not just a glycemic load, but just a high sugar food when I'm going to be going to bed in an hour or two. So then my wife said, Hey, look, I, I can't put these all in this Tupperware container. 
would you eat this last little piece here? And so my wife gave me a piece the exact same size as I had just eaten. And I started to say, oh, okay, it's small. I may as well do it. Yeah, I just got to take one for the team to make sure that the, the Tupperware container is symmetrical and everything fits. But then I thought, damn it, no, I'm, I'm, I'm losing weight. Like this, is, this does not align with my goals. And so my, my draw to be an OCD perfectionist and make sure that you know, everything fits properly, I was ready to sacrifice my own health value-based decision so instead, I got just a separate little container and put that away, and it's still sitting in my, my, my cabinet at home in the kitchen. So yay me. The reason I brought up that story is because it is research like this that does sway people's behavior. It still comes down to us to make those decisions, but, but why would I, when I love this food, when it tastes so great, when it's right in front of me, when my wife's shoving it under my nose and she said, here, it's just another small piece. Just go ahead and eat it to get rid of it. You know, this makes my job easier. You know, why would I not do it? Even though I impulsively wanted to, and I even said, yes, my second more prefrontal cortex decision was to put it away because research like this exists. That's counter to my health goals. That's counter to my current physique goals. And, and so I, I think things like this are valuable to us as, as people who are health enthusiasts, trying to eat a little bit better, trying to feel better, trying to maintain our, our better health. But um, why didn't she eat it? Exactly. Cause, cause she's so lean. Uh, Andrew Hughes said, why didn't she eat it? She's trying to kill you, which is very, very true. But she has, she has incredible health values even more than I would. She has no problem saying no. Um, it was, she did. She's like, I'm not going to eat that. I'm done. So we'll just give it to Joe. He's the garbage disposal. We know he'll eat anything. Uh, but she was wrong last night. I had, a, I, had a, I had a nice victory there. So any questions on this? Let, let's, let's go over kind of the methodology stuff or even just their conclusions. Anybody have any, any questions on the study itself or the topic of just glycemic index and glycemic load? Uh, Jerry, you mentioned that the scale for uh, glycemic index was zero to 100 at one point, and then they found foods that got the scale up to 140. What are those that are like high fructose corn syrup? What are those kinds of exactly? What's the 140? You know, what, what they originally surmised when they created the scale, it, and I think they should have just probably redone it, but I, I guess it was already too deep in the literature. but they just set table sugar as, as, you know, a hundred, like that's, that's, that sugar is sugar. Like there's nothing, there's nothing worse than pure sugar in their minds at that time. But then they thought, wait a second, that's a, uh, you know, that's a, a, a disaccharide, you know, there are two different, you know, I think it's sucrose and galactose make up table sugar. And, and then they found that there are actual, you know, sugar sources or carb sources that, that give you a higher glycemic response that make your blood sugar go up even faster. So a glycemic index is, is the response you get in blood sugar elevation. And they just thought table sugar couldn't get any more than that, but they, they were wrong. And so the, as they were doing more and more testing, they found things like just like white flour, like a process, like a white slice of bread or white potato because there's actually just more glucose that's a, a you know monosaccharide and so 
you know, that, that, that's why those, those sources that are even more simple than table sugar just kind of filled in that other side of the glycemic index. I'll have to look that up and look up what, uh, if they have a table of, you know, what everything is. But yeah. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Um, table sugars, glucose and fructose. Gluc that's right. Fructose. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, I actually use like two polysaccharides there. I, I knew it'd be wrong. Uh, and Tracy asked, what about protein paired with carbs? Absolutely. So that's something that they didn't even talk about here, Tracy. They just, in a survey model like this, they're just looking at which of these foods do you consume and in what amounts? And so, you know, a, a pro and a con, a limitation and a strength of this study is that they just wanted to keep it simple for the, the survey, the survey ease and say, you know, how much of these foods you eat, how often, et cetera. We know through actual experimental research that, that when you consume protein with those carbs, it does blunt the glycemic index because now you're slowing down the digestion. And so that would be factored in, you know, out of the 138,000 people surveyed, you know, we're assuming some meals are eaten with protein and some are not. So I think that kind of comes out in the wash in that you're still looking at a 50% or 51% increased risk. But, but at the same time, what you're describing is, is another way you could mitigate that risk yourself. And so, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, yeah, I think most of us do it the same anyway. Like, like you, you, you probably have some feedings once in a while that, are, that don't involve protein. Like if I, if I go get a Nature's Valley granola bar, that's primarily oats. And so that's just carbohydrates. But, you know, probably three, four, five meals a day for somebody in your position as a competitive athlete, bodybuilder, you know, you're definitely eating enough protein to, to mitigate that. That's probably what your wife should have thrown out when she uh, had that cookie that she should have just said, eat some protein with the cookie fly. Yeah, it, as long as you eat this brownie with a meatball or a chicken breast, it's like nothing. You, you can do it. It's, it's perfectly healthy then. Yeah, good stuff. Any other questions, guys? Sir, uh, I wanted to ask that many of the fatty people, like uh, uh, what type of leptin hormone disbalance they experience? Like, do they tend to eat more or they, do they tend to eat less? So this particular study did not look at that. Um, you know, if somebody's eating higher glycemic foods, would that actually increase their, you know, their, their, their hunger leptin levels to eat more. But, but I will say that there was the correlation that the people who ate higher glycemic index foods were heavier. And so they, you know, on, on this entire continuum of 138,000 people, those who ate more high glycemic foods were heavier, more obese, and they had higher cardiovascular issues. So Again, with that 95% confidence interval, we can say that those are related, that they, they eat more high glycemic foods, therefore they are more obese, therefore they are having more cardiovascular incidence, except that this study did not experimentally prove that, like that if I just sit down and I eat a, a, a simple, simple, simple carbohydrate, does that make me eat more later? There are actual studies out there that show that, I mean, experimental studies you know, with kids, with other people in metabolic wards, like when we give them this food and then we let them eat whatever they want, people who eat more, you know, higher amounts of high glycemic foods, 
they eat more in general. So, so that has been proven. It just wasn't necessarily a function of this particular study. But it's a really, really good point. Uh, I know, sir, that is not related to the study, but uh, I had a, I had this doubt that if uh, a person gains too much of fat, so it's obvious his uh, leptin hormone will disbalance, uh, according to what I have read. But uh, is there any thumb off rule that if a person will get fat, he, his leptin hormone will either uh, ask him to eat too much or eat uh, or his appetite will reduce? Yeah, that was my question. Oh, yeah, yes. Be because of the sensitivity to these hormones, absolutely. So, so just like insulin, uh, when, when we're consuming such a high carbohydrate or high glycemic load or high glycemic index based diet, we, we have so much insulin coursing through our bodies that our receptor sites just start ignoring it. And that's how we become type two and type one diabetic. And, and yeah. the same thing very much does happen with, with leptin and ghrelin with, with obesity in that, um, you know, physiologically and psychologically, we, we just, you know, we feel more hunger, we feel less satisfied with the food and therefore we eat more. That, that's 100% true. And that, and that goes all the way down to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with different forms of calorie deficits and different, you know, time restricted eating and fasting windows that counterintuitively, when you eat less frequently during the day, you end up with a lot less hunger because you have more sensitivity to things like that, things like leptin. So like uh, fat produces leptin hormone and if there is excess of fat, uh, can we say that uh, due to excess of leptin hormone production, our appetite reduces because the leptin tells us to stop eating. Uh, well, I I'm not sure that an increase of, are you saying dietary fat increases leptin or increased amount of stored body fat? Stored body fat. Okay. So, so that, that's what you would traditionally think is that when body fat cells are being fuller and expanded with more lipids, that, that then the, the change in leptin levels cause your body to say, you know, Hey, we're, we don't have to be hungry. You're not starving. We got plenty. Yeah. And, and, and that becomes a miscue. I mean, you know, two things happen. We can just psychologically ignore that behaviorally. Like I, I have many, 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 many clients who have been overweight and they say, I'm, I'm never hungry. I don't eat when I'm hungry. I just eat all the freaking time. Like I just like, I don't even know if I've ever been hungry because I always eat before I'm hungry. And so just, just describing hunger cues can be different. We, we can't correlate hunger cues and behavior based on exact blood leptin levels because you can, you can ignore hunger either way. You can ignore it on the positive side or you can, you can ignore the fact that you're not hungry and eat anyway. So it's complicated that we don't have a conclusion like whether leptin hormone causes us to eat more or stop eating when we, are, we have the excess fat. Well, that, that's, that's what that hormone is there for, but we still don't have to listen to it. Again, I don't, I, you know, I, I ate that brownie last night and I wasn't hungry. It wasn't because leptin was saying, Joe, you're starving. You must eat. I ate it because it was there. I, I, I was not listening to my body cues. I cognitively made the decision to have a small piece and I cognitively made the decision to put away that second piece but it had nothing to do with leptin levels. It was that, that was my conscious awareness and decision-making, which, which is another phenomenal point 
and that that's what drives some of these physiological changes. Because for us to get to the point where we're actually not feeling as much hunger, we're getting better at glucose disposal, we are you know, reducing hunger between meals, it's because we volitionally, you know, through our, our neocortex made the decisions to not eat even when we are hungry. You know, in a calorie deficit, there are plenty of times somebody's hungry and they just say, well, I'm not gonna eat because it's not time. Doesn't, doesn't fit my schedule for the day, doesn't fit my plan. So we can ignore hunger just like we can ignore the absence of hunger. It's, it's not always, okay. lept, leptin is there to drive us from a brainstem level. Leptin is there when my five-month-old grandson cries because he's hungry. That's because that's the only way he can communicate. He's feeling that hunger from his brainstem. He can't articulate to me, uh, excuse me, grandfather, I would like some food. You know, he, he's listening to, to that, that brainstem level response hormonally. We, we can just choose to ignore that. That's, that's how we become 70% obese as a society is by ignoring those hunger cues. So with excess fat, uh, eating too much or uh, eating less is completely our choice, our response. Huh? Well, it's, if, if I'm overweight, if I have 20 yeah. pounds of body fat that I don't need, it's above my, my healthy, you know, best weight, or I'm 200 pounds overweight, uh, you know, you reach a point when you're above your metabolic set point that it's not like your hunger's increasing anymore or and we never necessarily get a revulsion from food. Like, like there's not a point where you say, okay, I'm 200 pounds overweight or I weigh 600 pounds. So leptin levels or other hormones in my body, neurotransmitters are telling me I can't even eat. We'll still eat, you know. I, I, yeah. I go to buffets here in the United States and I see 600 pound people coming back with 16 plates of ribs and baked potatoes and stuff, you know, their body does not tell them to stop eating. So, you know, all of this, none of this revolves around leptin, like leptin is the okay. least important part of this conversation because we can override it with our thoughts. I mean, it's, it's, there is a trigger and it's, it's something we can study and say, oh yes, you know, leptin increases or decreases hunger based on our body fat storage. But the fact that we can ignore that on both sides is, is what's you know, most important.